Thanks for tuning in to the 168 Podcast, a podcast from Mitchell Knight and Jordan Bird of the Clarence Church of Christ, aimed at helping you connect Sunday worship with everyday life. What's up, 168ers? This week on the podcast, we're going to be discussing fasting and how it's beneficial for us in our walk with the Lord. And uh, this past week, Jordan actually ended up doing a sermon on fasting and prayer uh, and how that's beneficial for us. So I was going to kind of toss this over to him at the beginning, see if he could give us some general thoughts on maybe how you prepared the sermon, what made this come to your mind, and whatever else you think you'd like to add in like a general sense. Sure. So first off, just to give a little bit of context to why that topic was even one I preached on to start with, was uh, Mike Bowers, our normal preaching minister, had brought to the attention of the elders uh, leading up to Easter Sunday that the idea of inviting the congregation to spend time fasting and praying, part of that, just because we live in a culture where the season of Lent for a lot of Roman Catholics is currently happening. And so that's somewhat the the culture that surrounds us. Like a lot of people give up something, whether there's really much behind them giving it up other than just like their family reared, you know, raise them to give something up. And because they're part of the church, they give something up. Like it's just habit maybe at this point. And some people probably actually do give stuff up for actual like reasons or spiritual reasons, but either way, it's part of our culture. Uh, we know enough from just fish fries being offered that people give up meat to some degree and that kind of stuff. So it's part of the culture where we live in, in that spirit, how could we help invite the congregation into a practice that is something the culture already does, but in a way that is more lived out in the way the Bible describes that practice and the benefit that it could have for a follower of Jesus. So that's kind of the the heart behind doing it. And so those at Clarence Church of Christ are being invited to fast for 20 days. So the 20 days leading up to Easter Sunday is what we're inviting people to do as, as a church. And so my message this past Sunday, at least when I gave it, was the kickoff to a series of messages leading up to the beginning of that 20 days. So essentially kind of giving people time to think about the concept, where the practice might fit in with their life, their relationship with God, and what they might give up or what they might fast from or how they might approach fasting for that 20 days. So that's kind of the the overarching 5,000-foot view of, of the message. And so starting off the message, uh, a lot of it was, I did focus on a particular passage where fasting is referenced in scripture and, and doing my, my research for the message, I came across how the concept of fasting is mentioned over 70 times in scripture. And I even mentioned in my message, how there are explicit areas in scripture where fasting is mentioned, meaning the passage will say something like this person fasted for this long within this certain context. Like it actually mentions the word fast fasting or fasted in past tense. And so that's an, an explicit way in which it's referenced. And so there's references to the Israelites doing that to Moses doing that to Jesus, even doing that. Uh, those are explicit places where it's referenced. And then there, there are some implicit where, the idea of abstaining for something for a period of time is mentioned, but it's not directly mentioned within the story of like this person fasted, but you can, can derive from the passage that they're doing something like that. 
And so there's more than at least a handful of times that this practice is mentioned. Although I, for me specifically, it's a practice I've not been taught much about and what to do with it. So it's not really been something I've spent a lot of time in my life doing. So in some ways it's a new habit or a new practice for even for me to delve into. But if it's mentioned that many times in scripture, it's probably, no, it is worth us paying attention to. And even if the person we're following after Jesus does it, there's something to that. I think that we should at least pay attention to it. And so that was where we kind of started. So just kind of talking in general about the idea of fasting. And I specifically focused on the passage from Ezra seven and eight, where it talks about the Israelites fasting before Ezra takes a group of Israelites who have been exiled back to Jerusalem to help reestablish temple worship. And so I more or less just used that passage to, because it mentions fasting, Ezra specifically mentions it. So it gets us kind of into the topic. And from there, I kind of touched on just specific ways that we can look at, or a specific way, I guess, that we can look at fasting. And I more approached it from the standpoint of just breaking down like what fasting includes. And typically what you see throughout scripture is that it's generally fasting from food and sometimes drink or like water. That's the typical like item, if you will, that that someone fasts from. Um, Then you do have some implicit references to other things that people abstain from that are not like food. Uh, but generally it's food. So that's typically what's referenced to when someone says they're fasting from something, usually it's food. And so that's, we established kind of like, that's generally what fasting is. And then tied a little bit about how, like just the idea of fasting from food ultimately kind of has a connection to our need for sustenance and how food is that for us as human beings, but ultimately access and provision of food ultimately comes from God as the provider for that. So the idea that fasting ultimately has something to do with our relationship to who God is in relation to us as creatures who are created in his image and are dependent on, on him. And then from there, just looking at how like the situation with Ezra and the Israelites in that particular passage, you see that Ezra himself says that they fasted in order to humble themselves before God. And so I focused on how fasting is a practice that we can take up that helps to reposture ourselves. Like it's a tangible way in which we can focus on who God is in relation to us, that we are not God. We're not greater than God. Rather, God is greater than we are. We are dependent on him. So the, the hierarchy, if you will, is God and then us. But if we, you know, blur that line to where we think we are like God or we are above God, humbling ourselves or fasting can help to reposture ourselves to be in right orientation to God. So it's a reorientation or reposturing ourselves so that we can be more aware of who God is. And so ultimately I, I touched on a few sub points of how really there were a couple of misconceptions and I, I touched on two specific ones. One was fasting could easily be construed as like, well, I fast in order to like get God's attention. Like if he sees me giving up something or, you know, I'm suffering and giving up this thing. Like it's a form of like, it could be seen as a form of like spiritual bribery. Like God will take pity on me for giving this thing up or something like that. And so therefore we'll pay attention to me and I can ask him of whatever it is I'm petitioning him, something like that. That's one misconception that we see throughout scripture that that's not what fasting is. And then the other 
I think is the idea that like fasting gives us some sort of like extra access to God. Like it's the VIP pass, if you will. It's not that like, you know, we can see God from like, you know, the crowd. Like it's not like he's hidden from us entirely, but if we want to have like extra access, fasting is one way that we can do that. And so I also pointed out how that's one other misconception because the idea here is that God is never far from us. He's always near to us and wants to be near us and is always seeking us out and so there's nothing we ever are doing that is making that happen. God is always initiating that. And if there's a unawareness of God or an absence from God, it's more likely, and I think we see throughout Scripture, we can see this, just look at the Adam and Eve situation in the Garden of Eden. God came to them even in, when they disobeyed him, but they turned away from him. And so what usually is the case is that it's not that God is turned away from us or is not giving us access to him or he needs something from us. It's rather that we have turned from God and that's why we are unaware of his presence in our life. And so kind of tying it all back together, I touched on how fasting is a practice that we can partake in that helps to humble ourselves or reposture ourselves in right relationship with God so that we can ultimately see that he has been there with us the whole time. Like he wants to be there with us if we would just be in a posture where we can ultimately see that. And so it's, yeah, it's not a form of bribery. It's not a form of gaining greater access, but just a reorientation of our life for a a period of time so that we can see God for who he is. So that's kind of the core of what I talked about. And I'd be interested to hear how you received that, that message as a whole, kind of hearing it from the observer or listener or I don't know how everyone put that being the person that heard me talk. um, No, no, I I think on that topic that that was, I mean, obviously that was like the, the tag or the main point of the whole sermon, but that's obviously for me, what was most influential was just the idea that again, it isn't a VIP pass. It isn't bribery. It's just a way for us to kind of reorganize or reorient ourselves in a way that allows us to better see God for who he is and has already been in our lives. Um, now for me, um, I always look at fasting and I've, you know, at fasting in scripture, it, it often looks to me like it's abstinence from usually food and water that we think, you know, I mean, we, we do think about food and water as things that give us life that sustain us. And when we abstain from something that we're confident that gives us life and God still provides for us in that moment and fills us up, even in the absence of food and drink, we realize that, you know, we, we just kind of have deeper insight into God's provision, his care, his love. And also, you know, it ties back to our own humility. Like when I, I'll usually do a 24 to 36 hour food fast, um, uh, on the Saturday right before Easter and I usually break that fast with communion and it's amazing how horrible I am (laughs) after just like you know maybe a few hours in or something like that I mean I think a lot of us can get really confident in how much we can control the decisions we can make but if you just go a while without food like I mean I completely shut down like I I have a hard time walking places without getting winded. I have a hard time, you know, even falling asleep. You know, I, there's all kinds of things that I have difficulty with. But the amazing thing is that God is there with you through it, strengthening you and helping you, you know, also realize your need for him to strengthen you. I mean, that's, that's ultimately what it helps me get in that posture of understanding that, look, I cannot, if I'm not going to have food and I'm doing this on purpose, the only way I'm even going to function 
is if you are here with me right now, and usually when he is, because he always is, it reminds me of, well, it isn't just in moments like this where I'm not eating food or drinking water that he's with me. It's in every moment of my life. But fasting can be a moment where that's just more palpable to us is kind of like what I look at it. It's not necessarily adding any depth to anything, but it's helping us understand who God is from that kind of reposturing mindset, if that makes sense. So yeah, I mean, the, the short way of summing up my thoughts is like just agreeing with what you're saying. But yeah, I would say one, in the absence of something that we think we need, God gives us what we truly need to feel energized. And then the second perspective is from our own perspective of like, well, we're not as powerful as we think we are and we need our creator at all times. You know, even if we think we're strong, there's so there's even this little thing of not eating food can make us incredibly weak. So we need something beyond ourselves to provide for us. And that's kind of how it shapes my mindset as a, as a practice. Yeah. I should, I, what you were talking, it made me think of how I should have referenced the Snickers commercials where you have the people who go like turn into something they're not. Yeah. And then it's like, hung, what is it? Hungry? You need a Snickers? I forget the tagline. You're they not use, you but, when you're hungry. Yeah. But they don't use the word hangry, I don't think, right? It's no, just hungry. Else. Yeah. But even hangry, the term hangry kind of has the same connotation of. I mean, yeah. Like you I, turn in, you, you recognize that you're not who you fully should be without, I mean, Snickers is trying to say you need their thing, right? But you could see the parallels to how we see who we become when God is not in our life, but that's more due to us not having him in our life than it's him not being there. And, you know, we could substitute a Snickers for for God. Like when God is in our life, we, you know, we, we can see where we can see how to be content and full and, and all the things that, that God ultimately calls us to and wants us to, to be in supply in our life. And so anyway, that made me think of that commercial when, when you're talking, but yeah, to me, at least that's a helpful visual. Um, at least culturally that's there. Um, yeah. you have something. I was just going to say it's, it's interesting because, um, with, uh, addictions, if you look into addictions and withdrawal symptoms and stuff like that, one of the first symptoms for nearly every addiction when you're starting to break free of it is irritability. And, you know, addiction is obviously a much deeper and more rooted spiritual issue that we don't really need to get into. But the point is like, usually being addicted to something shows that you have a dependency on something or a need for something. And that whole hangry thing where it's like, you know, if I don't have food or water, I mean, people get mad like they people like we really need i mean there there is a necessity to food and drink but beyond that you know we serve an unstoppable god who can do impossible things like we were talking about a youth group and um he can get us through moments we you know we don't have what we need because we really do have what we need and that's god's presence so yeah i know you referenced the habit you have of fasting right before Easter Sunday. Do you have any other experience or like, yeah, experience with fasting or having tried it before, whether Uh, it fits the paradigm of how we've talked about it, but just having done it before? Yeah. I mean, I just reiterate that it, um, I, I get a lot out of being humbled by it because again, physically I, I cannot function without food. 
you know, especially for an entire day and then a night's sleep and stuff like that, it's it's really rough. But spiritually, I do feel stronger than I think I ever do, even if I have a hard time going about the daily routine or the daily things of my routine. Um, the only other thing, like, you know, I don't know if, you know, you, you could call it a placebo effect. You could call it a bunch of other things. Um, so I don't know if this would count as a religious experience or not, but typically when I break the fast on Sunday morning at communion during Easter, I feel full, which is strange, but um, that's something worth mentioning that pretty much every time I've done it and I take communion, I actually do feel full. Like, I mean, I'll still end up, you know, getting a meal after church, like to the point where like I'm seeking food, but I actually feel satisfied in the moment where I take the elements of communion, which, you know, when there's that physical element to it, in addition to the spiritual element, it's like, yes, you know, you know what Jesus said in John six about eating my flesh, drinking my blood and you'll live forever. This is kind of like a very I don't know, tangible way for me to understand that. Um, I mean, there's even something about my friend uh, Anderson is a very devout Catholic, and he mentioned like something his priest told him once about uh, a woman who was a Holocaust survivor, and she was actually in like a camp, and she ended up surviving entirely off the Eucharist, and that's something that it reminded me of too like I know I you know not saying I'm anywhere like I've gone through anything near what she has but there's there's just more corroboration there I'd be interested to see if any of you you know feel that way too but yeah for some reason there's just satisfaction in breaking a fast with communion elements yeah my experience with fasting is really kind of I mean like I mentioned earlier it really hasn't been something I've done at all a whole lot. I mean, I'm trying to think there's two, two times I can think of at least off the top of my head. One was, I think, I don't know if I was in high school or junior high, my home church might've even been earlier than that. I, I remember my home church was in the process of building a new building. So like they were in the like downtown of where the church is located and they were looking at building a building like on the more outskirts of, of the town and I remember part of that, or maybe it was part of like raising the funds for, you know, pledges for, for building it. I remember we did like a 40 day fast and prayer. Like there was like a board, like a, when the foam boards with like sign up sheet and whatever, like out in the hall, the lobby and people would pick like a time over this, like, it was like over the whole, it was over a month, I guess. Cause I think it was 40 days. It was at least a month if it wasn't 40 days. I know 40 days is often picked cause there are, scriptures that talk about people doing it for 40 days. So it's sort of like this. And, and I think part of that has to do, I've heard people reference, it takes at least often 40 days for like a habit sometimes to change. So just for even the habit of fasting to have maybe the impact of what fasting could do for a person takes that long for there to maybe be some noticeable impact on, you know, like, like I'm talking about earlier, if you're trying to be more aware of guy, like doing it for 40 days would probably have a greater impact of you becoming better aware of God than if you just did it for like a week, something like that. But anyway, I remember there was a time where like the whole church, the whole congregation did that. And I think I did 
I maybe participated that in some form or fashion. I don't really remember distinctly if I did or not. Like, I just know like my parents probably did and and stuff like that. And the the staff of the church did, but I remember it being like the whole congregation did it. So like that was impactful that like the whole congregation was doing it. But at the same time, like I knew like it was referenced in scripture and I knew that it's supposed to have some kind of impact with praying. Like it's not just like you fasted, but it's also with praying and generally fasting and praying are together. They're, they're symbiotic really. They have a symbiotic relationship. You do the one in order to kind of spend time doing the other usually. And, um, but I also don't ever remember the idea of fasting really being explained more than just like, yeah, like it's like something you do when it's like an important thing to, to see God on. And, and I get that. Um, but that was kind of like that, that was it. Maybe there was more to it at that time. And I just don't remember the teaching that was given on it. And, um, another time like that I can think of was more recent, but still a while ago is kind of doing the same thing, but with one other person specifically about a certain issue. And so like the two of us like saying like this time during this day of the week, we're going to like give up lunch or whatever to see God for this specific thing. But again, like it was still kind of in the same framework of like, I know I'm supposed to, like, it's supposed to be helpful to pray about something, but I'm not entirely sure what all is happening there. Like, I'm, so I'm admitting, like I kind of did something without really fully knowing like what it was actually providing me in return. Not that it's just this, like I get something out of it, but the impact of what it's supposed to be. And so that's, that's really my history of like fasting and praying. Um, other than doing intermittent fasting for like more health, like that's something I've tried more recently just as like a diet kind of thing, but that's not for like a spiritual reason. But so anyway, I, that's just to say, I don't have a lot of like actual like practice at doing it. So this whole topic has been very intriguing to me because I've never really delved into it to kind of see like what is going on there. Like, so like even the the passage with Ezra to talk about like where he really kind of explicitly says we did this in order to humble ourselves before God. So like he gives like a purpose for why they did it. I was never aware of that before. I mean, maybe the idea is kind of there just not, but not explicit in that way. So that was very enlightening to see one book that I found very helpful, just kind of looking at the topic of fasting, at least from a biblical and historical sense is a book by, and I just had to pull it up here. I forget her actual name. It's, R.D. is the initials, R.D. Chatham and Romera Chatham. And um, the Chatham, at least how it's spelled out here, is two different, It's one's with an E and one's with an A. So that, anyway, there's that going on. But anyway, the, the book is called um, Fasting, a Biblical and Historical Study. And it's a pretty simple book in that it really just kind of goes through, like the, this is generally where fasting has fit within human culture in the kind of a broad sweep of things. And then it goes like basically through the beginning of Scripture in the Old Testament all the way through into the New Testament, just kind of laying out like th- this is where fasting comes about. And this seems, you know, just kind of giving overview of like how it was used, why it was used, that kind of a thing. And then they give some concluding thoughts in the end. And it's really from that book where the, the concept of God is never like absent from us, but it's more us who turn away in our present to God where that really was highlighted. That that was one of the conclusions that they came from. Um, and I, and you see that I, I think all throughout scripture, when you th- look at that, look at fasting through that paradigm, but that book I would recommend is 
I mean, it's a pretty, it's not like overly complicated to read. It's 170 pages, but it's pretty simple and it's directly about this topic. So if that's of interest to, to anybody, I would encourage you to look up that book and um, to read it. Uh, and yeah, so that, that was a very enlightening book for me with the topic. And um, I feel like there's a lot more that I probably still need to learn about fasting. Like it's not probably just as simple as how I gave in my initial message this, you know, the Sunday I gave it. Um, one thing, I mean, there's a couple crazy things with fasting because on one hand it's mentioned explicitly throughout scripture and then there's implicit references, but there's not like a passage in like some book of the Bible where it's like, this is what fasting, like it's not laid out like that. It's very like, you have to kind of put it together. I mean, and that's because scripture is like a bunch of different writings compiled together to make one book. It's, that's a lot of how scripture is. But one of the craziest examples of fasting is Moses when he goes up to Mount Sinai and he goes up and fast for 40 days from food and water, it says. So that alone for 40 days, I mean, you can do food, but like without water is like a whole different story. And he does that for 40 days, it says. And then he comes down and encounters the golden calf situation with the Israelites where he's like, what are you doing? Like, I went up the, to meet with God. You're down here forsaking God. And he destroys the tablets. And then he goes back up to the mountain to meet God. And it's like two or four days. I can't remember which one. Like, there's a that much period of time between his initial 40 days of fasting. And then he goes back up the mountain and does it. It says he does it again. 40 days of fasting from food and water. And there's only like this short break in between there. Like, that is just crazy to think about doing like 80, almost 80 straight days of that. Like, what was he like after that? Like, um, I mean, and that's one of those, just like, did God sustain him somehow up there? And it's just not record. I mean, it's, there's anyway, that's just like one of the crazy examples of like, wow, like how did someone do that? But you also see the communion with God that he has in the midst of that. And I think that's probably intentional of those those connected together um, because that's where the the tablets with the Ten Commandments are given like there's a like a revelation of God's presence with the people that happens in the midst of him fasting in that time so I think that's interesting to see there but that's one of the the things that and, and actually I think that's one of the first ref, explicit references of fasting in scripture as well um, it doesn't really show up until that point from what I remember but anyway you have any other thoughts about fasting before we kind of wrap up the topic no so i think we're ready to transition into our one six eight debate and today we're going to be talking about social media and whether or not it's positive or negative for society you want me to start you want to start sure you can go for it me um so i think there's a condition to this answer kind of depends on what uh, demographic you're talking about I think for kids uh, and children social media is a net negative uh, there's a lot of studies about how they're basically frying the reward center of their brain with the amount of dopamine that they take in from social media and when that happens you obviously need more and more of something to get the same hit of dopamine so they kind of end up getting addicted or drawn into it for adults or communities like the church, I feel like there are definitely more beneficial aspects. So I'd say it's probably more positive for people who are able to use it responsibly or people who are more developed or later on in life wiser. But I, I feel like in some way, you know, whether it's intentional or not, it does prey on kids. So I don't 
I don't like it for that reason. But obviously from like an organizational approach, a communication approach, if that's what you're going to it for, if it's not just like memes and funny pictures, it's, you know, it can be more beneficial. So net positive for adults, net negative for kids. That's kind of my answer. Yeah, I can, I can see what you're saying there. I don't necessarily disagree. I think my answer is that I'm not sure enough time has probably passed to fully give a verdict in some ways, which can sound like a cop out, but it's not meant to be. But it makes me think about how technologies that have come before social media, like things like Facebook or any of the technologies like that, like applications that that foster uh, you know media that's that's of a social variety. How were they perceived? Were they perceived as like net negatives and net positives? And like, I was trying to think like television kind of would be the predecessor to social media and that it was a form of, you know, a media, a medium that a lot of people had like a generation before them didn't have. So, you know, it's television and net positive or net negative. Um, I mean, there's a lot of pros and cons you'd have to do to probably even come to that conclusion um, I think, I mean, most of us can't even fathom our life without something like television, let alone like, it, but many of us, like at least our age and like older, at least I remember life before a computer. People, you know, much younger than me, that's, it's harder and harder to have any sort of recollection of that. And so I'm in a, that, that sort of middle ground where like I can, I mean, at this point, it's like vaguely remember what life was like before screens having something like accessible all the time. And now it's like I couldn't almost fathom life without that. And so it's like. I'm sure there's a I mean, there's there's things that that technology is hindering from my life, which make it a negative. But there's also things that it's also made more accessible. I mean, just information in general, like um, I mean, the other night I'm the whole like Ukraine Russia thing had me intrigued about stuff earlier in history, kind of in that region. So I was like watching stuff on like the whole Kosovo uh, conflict. And I mean, that happened during my lifetime, but like I wasn't like in a, at the age I am now in the frame of mind where I am now of like thinking like the actual ramifications or like what all was going on there. But I can just pull up on YouTube, like all this coverage from that, that conflict and educate myself about something like I couldn't have done that before. I mean, so that's like a positive in one sense. Um, I mean, just the, the, the layers of keeping in touch with people is another positive one that I think has come from social media. And I think the hard part is like, we used to kind of be able to evaluate some of these things in a more linear fashion. And now they're not just like it either is or it isn't because we live in a world where there's layers of everything. And, I know like, again, this is sort of the like bridging the, the, where there used to not be like computer technology. And then there is computer technology to some degree. I can kind of remember both, but I still kind of default to like, well, no, like interacting means you do it in person. Like that's the, that's what it means. You know, this is the false version over here. And it's like communicating via text or social media isn't like a false version. It's just not the fullest version, but it doesn't mean you're not communicating. <laughs> like it's just not a yes or no kind of a thing. It's, it's a layer of it. It's no different than like if I handed you a note 
And then like we talked about the note later, like, yeah, the note is like a, a minor version of communicating and it's not the fullest version, but it's still communicating. Like no one would probably debate that, but we think it's somehow different because it's on a screen and it, probably cause there's that much more of it too. Um, but I think there's positives that have come from that. Like it's, it's made relationships that are far away that much closer. I mean, we all talk about how like we're only like a few degrees separation from people. Like, I mean, it's crazy how you can know about somebody in another state and like literally go there and interact with them in person. But it's like at the same time you've interacted with them in a long time, long, long before that, but just because of media Um, and during all the COVID stuff, zoom and video chatting has made that all the more a reality with, with things. Um, I mean, wherever you land on the whole climate and, and carbon and gas and all that stuff, like just the whole, just saving money, not driving somewhere in general has become a part of being able to gather or communicate with other people via the computer. I mean, the church leadership has taken advantage of that. Whereas like we always used to have to go to a central building to meet with each other. I mean, we could have done it over telephone, but you're not seeing faces and facial expressions, but you can at least do that with like something like zoom. So to me, there's benefits and there's probably, I mean, the fuller answer here to me is there's probably enough benefits that make it worthwhile, but it doesn't mean there's not things to not be careful about as well. But the same thing could have been said about driving or, or, or automobile. I'm sure there are people who are like, yeah. Oh, you're just being lazy. Cause you're using that machine to get you from point A to point B or whatever. Like as if you were the horse before or something like, I mean, you were relying on someone else to do the work anyway. Like someone might've said the same thing with like domesticating animals. Like you're not walking everywhere. Like, I mean, there was a transition period for all of this stuff. Um, but I think from like a biblical perspective, it's like looking back at like how God has m- made us creatures who are able to develop things to help the fullness of life that God has created to to be more unfolded and, and available and accessible. Is there Are there negative things that come with that? Yes. Um, I think it's just super complicated to be able to say like, what's the the positive or negative. I think there's probably both is really kind of my answer. Um, but I think just the, the topic in general is just very interesting because it can very much be a, it's just evil. <laughs> it's like, it's just, it's yeah. not that simple. It's just not that simple. Um, I think there's probably a place for certain versions of like technology. Like if, if it's an issue for you, then don't do it. But that doesn't mean like it has to be this like blanket. Nobody uses it. Although there's stuff like that, that like, like what may be hard for me to do, like it it can be hard for me to imagine how it's not hard for someone else to do. Um, But there's some discernment, I think that goes into that. And we do that hopefully in community and and things like that. But I don't know. Do you have any other thoughts on the topic? No, I think we're good to wrap up. All right. We hope that you enjoyed our conversation and we hope that our talk about fasting inspires you and encourages you to seek after God, not just on Sunday, but every day of the week. See you later, 168ers. See ya. Thanks for joining.